The text for the sermon this day is taken a little bit from all of the readings that you've heard today. So grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As a slight note, if you notice when we were singing that hymn, two of the verses were not in music, didn't have the notes. And the reason is because I wanted to include two verses from the old hymnal that did not get transferred to Lutheran Service Builder at Lutheran Service Book, and I'm not smart enough to know how to put in the music. So, but that verse 5, if you were reading that, of death I am no more afraid, that got cut out of the new hymnal. I thought that was a beautiful verse to keep in, to bring back and sing. But anyways, glory. You think of the word glory, what images come to mind? Perhaps you might think of the glory of a champion. Perhaps you see somebody standing on, on the pedestal at the end of the Olympics, putting that gold, the gold medal around their neck, the national anthem playing. Maybe it's after you've got that game-winning shot or the game-winning game run, and the confetti is coming down, fireworks are being sounded, people are celebrating, pouring champagne on one another. Perhaps for you, glory might be on television. You're in front of that camera, and you're all, and everybody's interviewing you. Everybody wants to know what you're thinking, what you're doing, what you're saying. Or maybe glory is just having a lot of money, having a really nice house. But what does glory look like when you think of the glory of God? Maybe when you think of the glory of God, you might think of the image that Isaiah saw. In Isaiah 6, it says that the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And surrounding him were two seraphim. There's, they're, the seraphim, they're chanting back and forth, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. And these seraphim, they would, they're bur they're, seraphim literally means burning ones. And so they're these fiery beings. They had two wings with which they flew, two wings that covered their feet, and then they had two that covered their eyes because they could not gaze upon the glory of the Lord. Or maybe when you think of the glory of God, you might think of the Mount of Transfiguration. We read about that all the way back on Valentine's Day. When Jesus was on that mountain, Peter, James, and John were there. And Jesus was transfigured, a glorious, blinding light, brighter than any bleach could bleach him. Or maybe you think of when James and John in the Gospel lesson last Sunday... They said, Lord, grant us whatever we ask to sit on your left and your right when you enter into your glory. They might have been imagining, well, Jesus is on that throne, then I'm going to have a throne of my own, surrounding by jewels and crowns. I have the nicest clothing. Everybody's looking on me and adoring me. If I'm close to the glory of God, then it must be awesome. Everybody's looking at me and wants to be like me. And then you have Palm Sunday. You imagine they must have had their imaginations as to what the glorious, triumphal entry of Jesus would be. They knew he was coming into town. And so they were imagining what he might arrive. Maybe he'll arrive 
riding on a stallion or on a chariot, and he'll be, bare, he'll be covered in glorious armor, and he'll be wielding a sword. He would be the guy to finally overthrow those Roman oppressors. And instead, they get Jesus on a donkey. And he didn't have the most impressive of uh, garments. He was just wearing regular, everyday clothes, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. But they still probably had a little bit of confidence because they know David rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And they know they, some of them would know that passage from Zechariah, which you heard a little bit ago, that, God, that, that your Savior would come on a donkey, your king. And so they actually, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that they were, they would say, they're chanting for the rival of the kingdom of David. And so that's what they're thinking he's coming to do. I mean, Jesus' popularity is soaring at this point. I mean, yeah, he, he's, he's fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. He's made the blind to see, the lame to walk, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear. But most recently, he made Lazarus rise from the dead. And this was in Bethany. To give you an idea, Bethany was really, really close to Jerusalem. It'd be like if something really big happened in Arthur, I guarantee it in Ida Grove, we would know it happened. And so if somebody rose from the dead in Arthur, I think people would know it here, right? Probably. So that's how the news is traveling. So everybody's waiting for him to come. And so they think that he's coming to restore that earthly kingdom. Because, I mean, think about it. If he could feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, he could make the deaf to hear, the blind to see, he could raise people from the dead, he'd be the ultimate camp captain of any army. You kill a soldier, he'll just rise him from the dead. But see, that is the glory that we expect. That's the glory we want. But little do we realize we can't stand before that glory. The glory of God that we imagine is the one that we have cannot come anywhere close to. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted, he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. There's a, I don't know if you're familiar with the Babylon Bee, but the Babylon Bee is a satirical news network. Um, it's run by, from, by some reformed guys. But a while back, they did this article where the headline says that people keep on, congregation keeps begging to see the glory of God. He answers their prayer and they all instantly die. Because we cannot stand to be in the presence of that glory. Because if you come into the presence of that glory, He is holy, the holiest of holies, and you are not. And it is most emphatically reminded when you see it. As I've probably mentioned before, the glory of God is so surpassing of us that when God showed Himself to Moses... The really fun thing in the he the way it's written is God basically mooned Moses. Yes, when it says he shows his backside, you know what the backside is. 
That is the only part of God that Moses, the greatest prophet, could ever look upon. How good do you think we have? If only Moses could see the, where the sun don't shine, what could you see? Are you worthy of seeing? But see, the glory of our Lord is very, very different. The ultimate glory of God is nothing that you expect. Because you see, a few days before Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter gave a confession. He said, to, said of Jesus, you are the Christ. Only a few moments later, Jesus told them what was going to happen to him, that he was going to suffer, he was going to die, he was going to be betrayed. Peter says, no way, that will never happen to you. When James and John asked to sit on the right and the left of Jesus, it was only a little bit prior to this, it was actually right before they made this request, Jesus told them that he was going to be flogged, scourged, betrayed, abandoned. He told them everything that's going to happen. And even though he just told them he was going to suffer excruciatingly, they changed the subject to see how they could sit on his glory. And what Jesus told them was, you don't know what it is you ask. To sit on my left and my right and my glory is not for him to choose. And he even told them, are you able to drink the cup of which I drink? Which you find out later in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, what that cup is. He prays that that cup would pass from him. The cup was his crucifixion. Because you see, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on that donkey, he was presenting himself as king. But that's not all he was presenting himself as. He was presenting himself as a lamb of sacrifice. Because you see, that Friday would be the 14th of Nisan, the day when the lambs would be sacrificed for the Passover. He was riding into Jerusalem, a lamb uncomplaining forth. He was presenting himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was riding into Jerusalem. As the closing hymn, we're going to sing it, Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. There's a reason why the entire Palm Sunday service works the way it is. You begin with the reading of the triumphal entry and we process in, which by the way, I, was, I considered it, but we didn't do it, maybe, if, maybe next year or whatever. But I actually would, ideally when you do the Palm Sunday, and triumphal entry, the entire congregation starts in the parking lot. Like all of you are in the parking lot. And we all process in with palm branches. I heard of a church in, in L.A. They have 2,000 people every year in their parking lot on Palm Sunday. 2,000 people. And they all together process into the church. Because remember, it wasn't just the children that processed we're following Jesus. Everybody was following after Jesus. You are a child of Jesus by faith. 
And so you follow in. But when you get to your places, you notice we had a moment of silence as that cross was reveiled, reminding you that this one who rode in triumphantly on that street in Jerusalem would at the end of that week carry a cross down the very same street. Because that is where he was carrying, he was carrying the cross to his glory. Because his ultimate glory is not on the throne of gold, but on the throne of the cross. That was his glory. The crown was made of thorns. The gems was the blood that poured from his veins. Consider that reading from Philippians. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." When Paul uses that word even, he recognizes the irony. Because crucifixion was designed to humiliate. That was the goal. There's a reason why when you were flogged, the person who mopped up your blood was your own parents. There is a reason that when you went down the went that you had to carry your own cross. There is a reason why they stripped them naked. There is a reason why they were nailed on a, hung upon a hill right where you entered into the city so that no one ever missed it. It was so that, and, that, and there's a reason why at the top of the cross you would see the words, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. In fact, do we have, I don't, okay. If you ever look on some cross, it says I-N-R-I on the top of it. That's Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judas, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That plaque on the top was basically assigned to you. You see this guy hanging on the cross in pain and humiliation. You don't want to be like him. If you saw Jesus, you'd see him. You'd say, it'd be a warning to say, don't be Jesus of Nazareth. Don't be like him. Don't be like the King of the Jews. That's what that warning was. It was a crime deterrent that the Romans designed. But here's the irony. The Gospel of Mark, which there's a reason, again, this is kind of, again, going to the reason our service is designed the way it is, is you heard one of the passion accounts, the, the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. Every year, if you go to church on Palm Sunday and Good Friday, which, and I should say, when you go to church on Palm Sunday and Good Friday, it should not be an if. For some reason, Good Friday has fallen out of favor in our culture. There's a time when it was very, very well attended, but we don't want to look on that. We're very much like Peter. We don't want to talk about Jesus' death. We're very much like James and John, want to change the subject as soon as we can. It's amazing how many kids have never been to a Good Friday service in their entire lives, and we can't blame this on COVID, that's only happened once, 
We want to change the subject, but when you come, if you go, come today and Friday, you have heard the, an account from the Synoptic Gospels, and you'll hear an account from John's Gospel of the crucifixion. And the reason is so that you could get the fullness of what happened. If you only get John's account, you never hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You never hear about the darkness during the crucifixion. Or you don't get this really amazing detail in the Gospel of Mark. The very first verse in the Gospel of Mark is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The irony in the Gospel of Mark is you go through the entire Gospel. There is no, no human being that calls Jesus the Son of God. Even when you get to Peter, confessing that Jesus is the Christ, Mark leaves out Christ, the Son of the Living God, leaves out the Son of the Living God. Which, given the fact that Peter is the one that gave Mark all that information, I believe that intentional. That Peter didn't get it. He said those words, but he didn't know what he was saying, and that's evidenced by what he said, what he did a little bit later when Jesus had to say, Get behind me, Satan. The only ones who call Jesus the Son of God in the Gospel of Mark are the demons, with the exception of one human being. There's one human being in the Gospel of Mark to call him the Son of God. Did you catch who it was earlier? The centurion. See, when he saw our Lord in the glory, his glory, the one who oversaw his crucifixion, saw Jesus in the fullness of his glory, and he said, truly, this man is the Son of God. It's in his death that he saw the Son of God. That's his glory. Not when he shows the grandeur of his power, but when he empties himself of it. He lays it all aside, everything. He is abandoned by his religious leaders, abandoned by the government. He's been relieved of his, of his blood has been poured out. He's been basically suffocated. When he has emptied everything down to his life, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When God the Father had abandoned him, when he had lost life itself, literally was emptied, that is his glory. And this is the irony that this was all designed to humiliate. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves which is in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is telling you, you are commanded to do likewise. Your attitude is to be the same. Now, not, not that you're supposed to be crucified. Very unlikely any of us will ever be crucified. But, he is saying that you are called to humiliate yourselves that another may receive the grace of God. This week, Holy Week, as I mentioned, there are four services. Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Vigil, and then you have the two Easter services which are going to be the same. Four times to come to worship. All of them unique. And I say bring children because there are visual elements 
that happen in these services that you don't get any other time of the year. Monday, Thursday, this altar will be stripped bare. Good Friday, you're going to see the church go pitch black and you'll have that loud bang that makes everyone jump. The Easter vigil, you come and the church will be completely darkened. Left over from Good Friday, it's going to slowly get brighter and brighter. Easter Sunday, we're going to start with the service that we use at the committal during the cemetery. And again, the church is going to start off pitch black and the lights are going to show it on. All of it is so visual, carrying you through the fullness of what happened on that Holy Week. What Christ had done for you. But also, this is my challenge to you this week. Even if it means being humiliated or whatever, that uncomfortable thing of doing it, I challenge you to invite two people from two different households. So you can't be like, well, I invited his hus- the husband and wife. That's cheating. Two of the s- two different households to come to church at any of those services this week. That's my challenge. Now, note, to come with you. Don't be like, hey, why don't you come to church? I may not go, but why don't you come? No. Invite them to come with you. Do you know why 85% of people, the reason why they eventually go to church is because someone invited them other than the pastor? You know, the problem with the pastor is, one, it's our job. Two, we can't sit with them during church. Unless they really want to sit up front. If they, I don't know. So the perk, you could sit with them. Say, hey, why don't you come and meet me? Or I could pick you up and we could go together. We could go get breakfast afterwards. I challenge you to do that. That they may come and hear of their Lord alongside you who humiliated himself for you that you may have life in his name. And that you, who though you are a person of unclean lips and live amongst the people of unclean lips by the blood of Jesus in his glory, you are made able to sit before him in the presence of his eternal glory. Till that day comes, in Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Amen.